attachment to others is the original reward. This quote comes from Jacqueline Olds, Harvard Medical School Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Mass General Hospital, and I couldn't agree with her more. In this third season of Birth Happens, we'll be taking a deep dive into the theme of connection. You can do a quick Google search and find lots of different definitions for connection, and this one usually sits at the top of the results. I define connection as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. Now, who am I to contradict the amazing Brene Brown? I mean, this is an incredible definition. But it's a little long, don't you think? And it doesn't quite capture the importance of connection as far as I'm concerned. So here's my definition. Connection is everything. Especially when we're talking about starting a family and raising the next generation. Why? Because connection, at least for human beings, is the most basic need we'll ever have. Newborn babies are the most vulnerable of all mammals at birth. They literally can't do anything to take care of themselves. If there weren't at least one adult human caregiver committed, connected to them, they wouldn't survive. So you see, connection begins with birth. And from a neurobiological perspective, evolution understands this. That's why we're hardwired for connection, y'all. It's baked into our DNA. Babies are experts at expressing their need for connection, but that doesn't always mean that their need gets met. Wherever you find yourself along the parenthood journey, just considering starting a family, knee-deep in diaper changes, navigating your first back-to-school season, or helping your not-so-littles figure out how to become contributing members of society, connection remains at the center of it all. Now there's a very strong pull in our culture, especially Western American culture, to deny that we have any needs, least of all, a need for connection. But this attitude of, I can do it myself, I don't need help from anyone else, is not only untrue, it also turns out to be harmful to our physical and emotional health. In season three of Birth Happens, we'll focus on what connection is, why it matters so much, how to recognize disconnection happening between you, your baby, and your partner, and how to reconnect in ways that will strengthen your relationships and your sense of belonging to something larger than yourself. Are you feeling ready to connect? Well, let's go. Welcome. My name is Barb Buckner Suarez. For over two decades, I worked as a childbirth educator and a couples coach, helping thousands of families say yes to parenting. I've got some thoughts about how life changes when we choose to become parents. Those thoughts may be irreverent, funny, or countercultural at times, but I promise you, they will always be real. Whether you're curious about starting a family, in the middle of your fourth pregnancy, or your birthing days are long over, raising the next generation is hard and all of us could use a little more support. I want this to be a place where you can find that support. Because let's face it, birth happens.
When did DIY become a thing? But more importantly, when did it become a way of life? It feels more recent to me, a development that's taken over our culture and society in a stranglehold, and the idea of relying on others is not only frowned upon, but outright rejected as even something to be considered. This really blows my mind, y'all. I mean, have you even seen any of the pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope? We're floating on a little blue marble in the vastness of space. We really don't have the luxury of thinking that we can do anything all by ourselves. But before I take us on a dark existential journey into our current and future existence as a species, let me reel this back in to talk about how and why our interconnectedness has even more importance when we're talking about parenthood and raising the next generation. It's a pretty countercultural idea, but I've never really been one to play by the rules. Rates of loneliness are at an all-time high. This was true even before COVID-19 and the isolation that came with it. But if you ask, many people will gladly report that what they're experiencing is anxiety or depression before they would ever admit that what they're really feeling is loneliness. This may be because as humans, we're hardwired for connection to one another. It is truly the only way that we could have survived as a species. So to admit that we're experiencing loneliness would mean that we've been disconnected from our social group. And this is, emotionally, very painful. On a neurobiological level, our brain registers emotional pain in the same area and in the same way that it registers physical pain. In one study, subjects were asked to play a virtual game of toss within a small group of three. What the study subject didn't know was that the other two people were actually just computer avatars, programmed to eventually leave the study subject out of their play. They just stopped passing them the ball. Researchers discovered that the brain areas that usually light up when a person is experiencing physical pain were also lighting up as a participant spoke about what it felt like to be left out. Their social rejection, their disconnection from the other two players, caused them emotional distress. The level of activity recorded in the brain region that registers pain was proportional to the amount of distress they reported. Now, this is just a silly little video game, y'all. Imagine the intensity when we're talking about playing the game of life and feeling like you don't belong. Some of us know all too well what this feels like. Maybe we can easily recall the sting of rejection from a jilted ex or being left out of the middle school in crowd or recognize that even in our own families of origin, we didn't quite fit, that somehow who we were wasn't accepted or valued. I'm going to pause right here and ask that all of us just sit and take a breath or 10 because even recalling these painful moments can cause our bodies to react and those feelings of pain to come bubbling back up to the surface. My sincere hope is that through the passage of time and space, and maybe with the assist of some therapy and good pharmaceuticals, you've been able to find your circle of supportive, loving, warm, 
and respectful people, your chosen family, friends, and even your partner, who've helped you on your journey of healing. But now that you're on your parenthood journey, it's so important that you expand that circle to include all the people who will help you feel less lonely as you work to raise the next generation. This work is so important, not only for you and your family, but honestly, for the survival of our species. One of the great mysteries of evolutionary science is how and why the human brain is so big. Brain size generally corresponds with body size across all animals. Elephant brains are massive, and mice brains are tiny. But we humans are the rare exception. Given the size of our bodies, our brains should be much smaller than they are, but instead, they're the largest relative to body size in the entire animal kingdom. So, what gives? Anthropologist Robin Dunbar's research has been accepted as fairly conclusive on this point. The strongest predictor of brain size is the size of any mammal's social group. We have big brains so that we can be social. Now, if anyone is thinking that extroverts have bigger brains than introverts, just stop. I'm not talking about how many parties you go to or the number of contacts you have in your phone. This dates back hundreds of thousands of years, y'all. Our ancestors that have been discovered to have brains as large as ours are in current day appeared 600 to 700,000 years ago in Africa. And what we know about these ancestors is that they were the first to have worked together to hunt, they had joined campsites, and they even participated in important shared rituals like burying their dead. All social behaviors that were precursors to humans being able to work together to invent, build, create, and sustain cultures and communities across the globe. Our capacity to learn something new, pass it on to others throughout our culture, knowing that they will likely be expanded upon and potentially create something even better, is distinct to us as humans. This is how and why I want, no, I need, for you to risk whatever embarrassment or vulnerability you might feel in declaring that you're lonely in parenthood and find your people. The circle doesn't have to be big, y'all. You do not have to become a party animal here. You just need to reach out, armed with the knowledge that no one was ever meant to parent in isolation. And in fact, looking just at our brain size, it would appear that we were never meant to do anything else in isolation either. This circle should include folks who are super aware that they are not experts in this whole parenthood gig. You need to be able to show up as your authentic, real, messy self and feel like you belong, that you're part of the group. And this rarely happens if there's a sense of hierarchy or rules that must be adhered to. But this also means that you're not the expert either. Let's go back to that thing that anthropologists point out that make us so different from other animals. We can learn from one another and expand upon that learning to make something potentially better. And I'm going to add, for our family. It's countercultural to express that we don't have a freaking clue as to what we're doing, y'all. It's not an established American norm to admit weakness or vulnerability. It's frowned upon to say we could use a little or a hell of a lot of help from others, get anything done, especially when we're talking about raising our children. 
But anyone who's being honest and has enjoyed parenthood even a little bit will tell you it's probably because they accepted as much help as possible in getting this job done. And they will likely share how one of the things that made the work doable was doing it within a larger community, a web of connection that provided them with a sense of belonging. This work matters more than anything else you'll ever do in your life. Anyway, you might be able to do this work without feeling lonely is good for you and your whole family. I would even go so far as to say it has long-lasting and far-reaching benefits for the whole human family. Quick inventory. What are the aspects of parenthood that are most challenging for you? When do you feel most lonely in this work of raising the next generation? What steps could you take today to change this for yourself and others? We can all feel super green when it comes to parenthood. And I'm not talking about being environmentally conscious, y'all. Parenthood can feel like landing in a country you've only ever heard about, but never actually visited before. Everything seems so new and foreign. It doesn't matter how many books you've read or how many classes you've taken in preparation for becoming parents or even how many classes you've taught on the subject. When it finally happens, most new parents are as green as they come. So how do you move through those green feelings without becoming jaded? According to Crayola, the color of jade is in the green-hued family. Interesting. People are always in a hurry to feel like they know it all. They want to be considered a parenting expert. But you should know that the title of parenting expert leads to loneliness. There's just too much vulnerability involved with this work. And when you assume the role of expert, you don't allow for any mistakes or even a gentle finding your own way approach for yourself or anyone else. And even if you do consider yourself a newborn parenting expert, you've mastered the art of the one hand diaper change. Believe me when I tell you that there are lots of years left to go after the baby arrives, y'all loads of opportunities for you to question your basic abilities to parent, let alone your expert ones. So I think the answer might be a mix between trying to be as prepared as you can be and allowing yourself to fly by the seat of your pants every once in a while. This will lessen those feelings of being completely out of control, while at the same time increase the moments of wonder and awe that can come from looking at the world through your baby's brand new eyes. By the time most of you become parents, you've been around the block a few times. Life can start to seem a little predictable, maybe even a little bit stale. But throw a newborn into the mix and yowza, predictable and stale are not the two words that come to mind. While babies can make us feel a little bit off kilter, it's also great for our brains to be challenged by something that is so brand new. Every time we have to learn a new parenting skill, which happens about every 10 to 15 seconds or so it seems, we also get the opportunity to grow as individuals and as a couple. Our brains literally grow new neurons as we attempt to parent our littles, but y'all, this takes time. 
No one is instantly good at taking care of a baby, even if that's what they did before becoming a parent. The 24-7, 365 nature of raising your own child makes this a completely different ballgame. And remember, what works for one baby will probably not work for any other baby. Finding your circle of like-minded parents might have a certain appeal, but don't insulate yourself too much against parents who do things differently from you. They can be helpful too. It's most important to surround yourself with people who are real parents and not just parenting for show. These are the parents who are willing to reveal their exasperation, impatience, exhaustion, and willingness to admit that at times they have no idea what they're doing. But hopefully, these are the same people who really like parenting. They embrace the chaos, the not knowing it all, and are willing to seek out support from others if and when necessary. This parenting village might be a mishmash of friends and family you've known for years, mixed in with new acquaintances that you've only just met because you have babies that are roughly the same age. It doesn't really matter how you construct this parenting village, but it's something to consider doing for yourself, your partner, and your baby. That way, you can feel better equipped to support someone else who's brand spanking new at this. Sooner than later, you'll realize you've figured out the landscape, language, and customs of parenthood, and that you might just be the person who can help translate what's worked for you to those who are green to this whole thing, just like you used to be. And that's a pretty great feeling. Many years ago, a group of mamas from school realized something. We all had ADs, alpha daughters. They were kindergartners at the time. Most of them had older siblings and had been coming to the playground for years. They thought they ruled the school, y'all, and they were only five years old. In watching them from this early age, we all realized that they had wonderful potential, but that they might also try to dominate everyone else around them if we didn't provide them with some positive guidance. The idea of girl power gatherings was born. With the enlisted help of the mamas and some dads as well, we brought our girls together on a semi-regular basis for activities encouraging friendship and connection. And that's what these gatherings did for our girls, fostered positive self-esteem and a sense of community for each other and the world around them. I'd like to think that our trips to the Oregon Food Bank, creating gift packs for the homeless, and writing notes of hope and encouragement to children spending Christmas in the hospital help these girls recognize their value and power in creating positive change in the world around them. These gatherings fostered compassion and empathy, values that are too short in supply in our world. But as the ADs got older and involved with sports and other extracurriculars, finding the time to gather became more challenging. So we created an eight-week curriculum based on the original idea of our girl power gatherings for these now 10-year-olds. And each week, one of the parents would come up with an hour-long session to try and connect these girls to something larger than themselves. When it was my turn to lead the group, despite having some time to prepare, I was still wrestling with which activity I wanted to do. Helping the girls find their voices and choosing to be assertive, rather than passive or aggressive, or discussing why it's so hard to ask for help. 
I asked my daughter and her BFF which one they prefer, and immediately they both answered how to ask for help. Their response was not completely surprising to me, y'all. After all, I know they're mamas. Both of us happen to be strong alpha females in our own right, and I'm pretty sure our daughters come by this trait naturally. I wanted to discuss this topic with the girls at an early age because I don't know many people who find it easy to ask for help. Now, DIY office might work a fair amount of the time, but DIY parenthood is a recipe for disaster, especially when we're brand new at it and so many of us desperately need extra help. In our gathering, I asked the girls what they felt like when they had to ask someone else for help. Here are some of their responses. Weak. Stupid. Scared. Angry. Incapable. Dumb. Then I asked them what it felt like when someone asked them for help. The difference in their responses is amazing. Smart. Strong. Good. Happy. Admired. Loved. As we talked, we realized something. The idea of asking for help gets skewed from a very, very young age. We don't consider anyone who asks us for help to be weak or stupid or incapable. So why do we hold ourselves to such a higher and unreachable standard? Asking for help is not a one-way solo act. There is both giving and receiving involved. We'd already discovered how good it felt when we were asked to help someone else. Now we just needed to uncover all the positive character traits involved in asking for help ourselves. Asking for help requires us to be open, aware, smart, strong, compassionate, knowing, worthy, willing, capable, trusting, understanding. These were the words that I brought into the discussion. Then these young girls started adding their own words to the whiteboard. Brave, risk-taker, open-minded, balanced, knowledgeable, caring, loving, reflective. Finally, I added the word vulnerable to the list. It might not seem at first blush that this is a positive character trait, but I believe it to be one of the very best character traits anyone could ever possess, especially when asking for help. Feeling vulnerable is a prerequisite emotion when you ask for help. These two things walk hand in hand, but it's not a bad thing. If you're feeling vulnerable, you'll need to be open and trusting, and this makes for a great litmus test to decide on who to ask for help about anything. New parenthood, for example. Recognizing that parenting a baby is way bigger than anything else you've ever considered doing in your life before now is the first step to realizing how much help you'll need, especially in the very beginning, y'all, when everything is so new and you're so sleep deprived and you have bodily fluids leaking from every possible orifice and you're trying to get back to the person you were before the baby came instead of embracing the person you've become. Why does it have to be so hard to ask for help 
when every other parent before you remembers how hard it was for them, too. You are not alone in these feelings of raw tenderness, of everything teetering on the edge, threatening to fall if even one thing shifts. But y'all, use your feelings of vulnerability to guide you to the right sources of help. If thinking about asking a particular person for help makes you feel on guard and braced for attack, pay attention. Asking for help must come from someone who will make you feel better for the asking, not worse. Recognize that asking for help means you're a strong and capable person who understands their own limitations. You're open to feeling worthy, cared for, and loved. You're asking for help from a person you've identified as a reliable, trusting source, willing to be there for you in a way that is compassionate. Someone who will help you feel good about yourself and your ability to parent your child. The obvious person to turn to first is your partner if you have one. Parenting is a full-time, 24-7 job, and trying to power through solo so you can maintain the veneer of DIY strength is a huge detriment to you both. Your partner can lessen the load of new parenthood for you, but they need to be able to claim their own role as an equal parent. Give up the sense of control you think you need to have over how they do things and let them parent their baby intuitively without any explicit input and direction from you. The whole family will thrive if you ask your partner for help, but only if you actually allow them to help. As new parents, though, you'll likely need to outsource some of this help to support both of you. If your family lives nearby, they might be the obvious next choice, but not always. Bringing a baby into the world causes changes throughout an entire family, like a pebble being tossed into a pond. Sometimes our own parents are exceptional choices for additional help, but sometimes they aren't. If after making the ask, you don't feel like the help was freely and willingly provided and you're not feeling strong and competent in your new parenting, then they should not be considered a trusted source of help for you as a new parent. Who of your friends already have a baby? You respect them as parents? Will you be able to be authentic with them in the parenting arena? Can you freely share each other's parenting successes, but also your parenting failures? Because y'all, there will likely be many successes, but there will definitely be many failures too. Surround yourself with sources of help who will laugh and cry with you as you make your way as a new parent, so that you know you're not alone. If you're the very first in your circle to have a baby, then your task is a bit more daunting. You'll need to go and find your people. They're out there, I promise. But they won't be walking up to your door and ringing the bell. They want to help you. They just don't know you need any help yet. A new parenting support group, either private or hospital-based, might be your first step. The beauty of these is that there's a range in ages of babies represented. So that means you might come in feeling like a rookie looking to all the veteran parents out there who've made it through the trenches and have lived to tell the tale, soaking up all the wisdom they're willing to share like a sponge. But guess what? It won't be long at all before a new batch of rookies comes in to take your place, and you'll realize that you are now a veteran in this role of parenting. It's now your turn to answer the calls for help that these new parents send your way. And being able to help a new parent on their journey, even as you're plugging along on your own, 
well as the possibility of making you both feel smarter, stronger, and happier for the opportunity. What words hold you back from asking for help? How are we as new parents made to feel that asking for help is a sign of weakness or imperfection? How could your life be easier today if you stretch yourself a little and ask someone else for help? Y'all, you must say yes to all offers of help, at least the ones that will actually help. This is a skill that we're not particularly good at as expectant or new parents. Maybe it's our attraction to the DIY model of getting things done. If we don't ask anyone for help, that must mean we're strong, capable, and know what we're doing. But when people ask you, is there anything I can do to help you once the baby arrives? Do not hesitate. Even if you have no clue what type of help you'll need, answer with an emphatic yes. You can always get back to them later with specifics and details, but don't let that offer of help pass you by. People who make offers to assist you in any way that they can really do mean just that. They want to help you out. Maybe they remember how tough it was for them in those first days and weeks as a new family, and how they wish someone had been there to lean on. Maybe they just love newborns, and if they promise to do your laundry or bring you dinner, they get a sneak peek at your gorgeous little baby. Who really cares what their motivation is? As long as they're not offering you help just as a decoy to come over and hold your baby. That's not at all helpful, unless you're in need of someone to hold your baby while you either A, take a shower, Or B, take a nap. Otherwise, their help must involve some form of offering. Defined as a thing offered, especially as a gift or contribution. You get to decide what those gifts or contributions are for your new family. For some, it'll mean a shopping trip to pick up milk and TP so that you don't have to run out for the basics. For others, it might mean walking your four-legged firstborn, who might be feeling a wee bit neglected these days. Brainstorm now what your needs might be after the baby arrives, and write these things down on a brightly colored piece of paper and attach it to your fridge, or have a running tally on an app in your phone. Then, when someone is over for a visit and asks how they can help, Direct their attention to the list and give them the option of claiming one of the ways they can help you specifically. You have no idea what a gift this will be for you both. You'll get the help that you actually want and need, and the person who's offering to help you feels like they're making a difference and supporting you in a way that really matters. Whatever you do, y'all, when someone makes you an offer, Don't refuse. When it comes to new parenting, many of us can feel 
like we're drowning. Drowning in a sea of information. A sea with impossible learning curves. A sea full of all the things we've got to do to just get through the day. Have you ever seen the vintage flyer from the American Red Cross about how to rescue someone who's drowning? I came across this one day, and because everything I ever look at somehow connects to my work with expectant and new parents, I think even the outdated phrase of row, throw, go, tow is good for all of us to consider as we watch new parents wading into this dangerous sea for the first time. And here's how you can use this to help rescue them if you think they're at risk of drowning. Row. When you see a newish parent out and about and they have that slightly crazed look in their eyes that reveals that they're operating on very little sleep and are at great risk of being unable to hold up their end of an adult conversation, row over to them. They've probably been doing a ton of reading and information gathering and video watching, but all of that pales in comparison to talking to a real, live person who's actually thrashed their way through this wild sea and survived. Throw. If you can, throw them a couple of lifelines. After admiring the baby for a minute or two, make sure to ask the baby's age and then tell these new parents that they look fabulous. When we're first venturing out and about with our littles, we're not feeling like we've got it all together because we haven't. And we're worried that it shows in our face unwashed hair, and potentially spit-upon clothing. Help these parents feel better about themselves, and it helps them feel better about their parenting. Go. There are literally tons of available media for consumption about new parenting. A Google search on this topic will pull up 926 million results in 0.6 seconds. They don't need another referral to a website. They need a real person. Go to them and be that source of real, down-to-earth, here's how it really is, parenting advice. But only if they ask for advice first. Always respect the parental code of honor. And y'all, you can go back to Season 2, Episode 4 to learn more about that. Toe. Remember how scared you were and how vulnerable you felt as a new parent? Help those who are coming along behind you still struggling to keep their heads above water and tow them along. Carry them a little bit until they're feeling like they've got more solid footing underneath. Knowing that they can count on you to bring them to safety will make them feel so much better and in turn makes you feel pretty good too. Row, throw, go, tow. When we feel lost at sea as new parents, it's sometimes those strangers who get it and say the right words at the right time that can make all the difference. If you feel like you're drowning in this new parenting sea right now, then be on the lookout for those who are able and willing to rescue. And if you've made it out of the sea and are sitting on the shore, then help a drowning parent out, eh? They'll be so grateful that you did. Y'all, where are you in the sea of parenting? Drowning? Treading water like mad? or safely on the other side. Do you have any memories of those sweet rescuers that helped you when you needed it most?
Since the beginning of time, humans have gathered in small communities to provide connection, social stability, and safety for one another. The members of these communities banded together to share important responsibilities, including caring for the most vulnerable among them, the very old and the very young. You see, you were never meant to parent in isolation. Having a baby involves intense physical and emotional recovery. And the learning curve on how to care for and raise this brand new human being is so steep. How wonderful it would be to count on a community ready and willing to step up and help in this transformational life event. But today, the reality for far too many parents is that they don't have that community. Maybe you know how this feels. You've been separated from your family of origin, spread far across the country or even the world. And while you may feel settled in your new city and job, and you may have established a new set of friends and workmates, do you feel like you have a real community? It's a lot to ask parents to also find their community while being stretched thin as a new family. But having a support system in place is essential for yourself, your couple relationship, and your baby. So what does community look like for you? What resources do you know about local or otherwise that help new families do more than just survive? They help you thrive. What strengths do you and your partner bring to this new parenting experience? What might your particular challenges be? Who do you know that you could call on for support? Answering these questions first, then seeking out and securing support how and where you need it can have huge payoffs for your entire family. In the following practice session, you'll be asked to identify your community of support and given some tools on how to ask for help. Your self-image may include being a strong and independent person. You're the one others call on for support, not the other way around. But holding on to that self-image doesn't serve you or your new family well. Acknowledging your feelings of vulnerability or how much help you need caring for your new baby can be really hard. But why? Because we tend to think asking for help means we're weak. But in fact, the opposite is true. Knowing ourselves and our limits, then seeking out support and asking for help shows just how strong we really are. But how do we ask for help when we're used to being the one helping others? Practice with your partner or a close friend or family member first, and then reach out to others when you feel more comfortable. If that feels too challenging, ask them to reach out for more help on your behalf. Here's how to do it. Number one, identify your wants and needs. Number two, Explain how this will make things easier for you and why that matters so much. Number three, be very clear what you need help with and who's the right helper. Number four, be flexible in accepting the help that's offered, even if it's different than your expectations. And number five, repeat steps one through four 
as often as necessary. I've attached a template to identify the practical support you might need as new parents in this episode's show notes. But who will you connect with to support you emotionally? Who's your 3 a.m. person? This is the person who would drop everything to help you, physically showing up on your front doorstep or staying on the phone to help you process whatever needs processing. Your support system ideally includes people you can be your most authentic, real, and vulnerable self with. You've been someone else's 3 a.m. person in the past. It's time to identify your own and let them know that you'll be calling on them for help now and in the future. You were never meant to parent in isolation. Your support system does exist, but you'll need to shift your self-image to reach out and ask for help first. Then watch as your community gathers around to support you and your new family. Y'all, I'm going to try practicing what I preach and let you know that I'd really love some help from you if you're willing to give it to me. My goal with this podcast has always been to reach as many expecting and new parents as possible with the message that raising the next generation matters and that they have what's within them to do this work. So if you wouldn't mind, could you share Birth Happens with some of your friends, family members, or coworkers? And if you're feeling especially helpful... You could write and share a review of Birth Happens on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast, even on your social media channels. Encourage folks to listen from the beginning of episode one or share your favorite episode. It's all good. Like I've said, we're not meant to do just about anything in this life all on our own. And so I appreciate your help in getting my message out to more listeners. Can't wait to connect with you again next time on Birth Happens.